Psalm 69, to the choir master, according to lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth for my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him who you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those who you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that move in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servant shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. The 
There's a table that you've prepared for me In the presence of my enemies It's your body and your blood you've shed for me This is how I fight my battles There's a table that you've prepared for me In the presence of my enemies It's your body and your blood you've shed for me this is how I find my battle the battle the priest shall come near and speak to the people he shall say to them hear O Israel you are approaching the battle against your enemies today do not be faint-hearted do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. This is how I find my battles. This is how I find my battles. 
like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and open to Psalm 69. You've already heard that read uh, this morning. But I would love for you to have your Bible there in front of you as we work through the passage this morning. Uh, Being consumed with Jesus isn't elite Christianity. Uh, Being crazy all in All chips to the middle of the table with Jesus is ordinary, everyday Christianity walking with God. Uh, My goal today, this morning, for for all of us here, is that we would leave this room just absolutely crazy for Jesus. My aim is that we would walk out of this room ready to just absolutely make a fool of ourselves for Christ's sake. And so to give you a little picture of what kind of crazy I'm talking about, um, one of my favorite movies is called National Treasure. Uh, If you're the kind of person who wonders if we've really landed on the moon or seriously questions the authenticity of dinosaurs, uh, this is your kind of movie. Uh, This is right up your alley. Uh, It's just the right amount of American history, conspiracy theory, uh, and Nicolas Cage. Uh, This is such a great movie. Um, If you haven't seen it, I'm about to ruin it for you. Uh, You've had since 2004, so that's on you. Um, I think what draws me in most to the storyline of of this movie is how the the main character, Benjamin Gates, just gets absolutely consumed with this conspiracy that there's a hidden treasure. And he does everything that he can. He, He collects these artifacts. He chases all these trails. And really, he gives his whole life to finding this this treasure. And obviously, uh, uh, everyone in his life thinks that he is completely nuts. Uh, everyone in his life thinks that he has lost his marbles. Uh, to, so, and and it, gets, it goes so deep for Benjamin Gates. This conspiracy goes so deep for him that he actually steals the Declaration of Independence. I mean, this guy is nuts. He has lost it. But then here's the twist in the story. When he steals the Declaration of Independence, you learn that he's actually right, that there really is this hidden treasure, and that all the people who thought he was crazy, they're actually wrong, and he's the one who's actually the smart one, the wise one. He is the right one. Now, obviously, uh, this movie is a fantasy. I know we all wish it wasn't. How amazing would that be if this was real? That would be awesome. Uh, But I think what this movie illustrates for us is that there is a fine line between committed and crazy. There's a fine line between faithful and fanatical. And the line isn't about how passionate you are about something. The line between crazy or committed is about whether the thing you're passionate about is true or false. Whether the thing that you give yourself completely over to in the end is actually real or fake. 
Uh, as we turn to Psalm 69 today, which again, we've, we've already heard read, uh, this is precisely where we find David. David is a man who had gone all in with God. That his passion for God's glory is bringing upon him uh, ridicule, uh, mocking, and shame. And I think it's fitting because uh, David, as the anointed king of Israel, is actually a uh, foreshadowing picture of a greater king of Israel who would later come, whose name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is both better than David, and he suffered more deeply than David did. Jesus offered himself up willingly, and he did it for us and for our salvation. And so I think that's what we're going to see as we work through Psalm 69 this morning. Uh, we've got 36 verses, 7 points. I hope you brought your seatbelt because we are about to take a journey. Um, the first point this morning, coming from verses 1 through 5, is that those who seek God will swim in hatred. Those who seek God will swim in hatred. Uh, in verses 1 through 3, we see David crying out to God in what seems like a panic. Let's read it. He says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. This is an overwhelming situation. It feels to David like he's drowning. Uh, I'm sure that you can imagine a time in your life when you felt like you were overwhelmed, when you were drowning. And then we see in verse 4 why David is feeling this way. He says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without a cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? The drowning waters in David's life are the hatred of people towards him and the fact that he is being treated unjustly. He's being asked to pay back that which he did not steal. So every human being, that, that means you, that means me, we are all born into sin. And what that means is that from the moment we're conceived, uh, we have uh, a bent toward, against, excuse me, against God. Uh, we are born antagonistic to God. It's not always something that's overt. Uh, many times it's subtle and sort of under the radar in our subconscious. Uh, but what that means is that for all of us, uh, when someone else begins to love God and they begin to walk like God and act like God, then if we hate God, even if it's subconsciously, then we actually end up begin, we begin to start hating that person. And that's the situation that we see playing out with David. As David gets more and more in love with God, the people who hate God begin to hate David more and more and more. And I think that's helpful for us because we're experiencing something in American history that we're not used to. Uh, for a long time in American history, or, or for, for, a, for a short time, I guess I should say, actually, in American history, uh, there's been a season where uh, some of the ethics of following Jesus, some of what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus, has actually held some sense of honor in our culture, even among people who are worldly, even people who don't follow Jesus, still kind of nodded their head and gave a thumbs up towards some of the things that people do, people do who follow Jesus. Um, but things are shifting, things are changing, and that's no longer the, the waters in which we find ourselves in. And so there's a, there's a, a tension happening where m many of you grew up in a world where it was actually um, an honor to follow Jesus. 
But now the world we find ourselves in is that if anyone takes Jesus too seriously, uh, believes the Bible too literally, or obeys God too, quote-unquote, religiously, uh, there is a good chance that you are going to receive opposition in your life uh, from your neighbors, from your coworkers, and potentially even your own family members, uh, that there's going to be legitimate opposition in your life because of following Jesus. And um, I think we need to see from David right here, even before the, the whole rest of the psalm is going to play out from this scenario, but even right here in the first five verses, we already begin to see how uh, David responds to being hated. So what should we do when we're hated by the world for God's sake, for the sake of Jesus? Uh, notice how in verse 5, as David cries out to God in desperation, he also keeps himself honest and humble before the Lord. Verse 5 says, O oh God, you know my folly, the wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. David isn't saying that the hatred that's coming towards him is connected to his faults. But he is saying that he understands that he too himself is a sinner, that he too himself once hated God. And so the way he responds when, 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 when hatred comes into his life, rather than puffing up with self-righteousness, rather than puffing up with self-validation, David does the exact opposite he actually appeals to God's grace. He reminds God and he reminds himself that he is both a sinner and that he used to be a God-hater as well. And then it is from that humble position that David can begin to respond appropriately to the hate that he's receiving in his own life. And so after making this initial appeal to God, uh, David's take, David takes us deeper into what's really going on. And so second, those who seek God will be disgraced for God's sake. Those who seek God will be disgraced for God's sake. In verse 7, David says it clearly, For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. See, the friction in David's life existed because of his faithfulness to God. David is being shamed for his own passion for God's glory. Even his own wife at one point in his life was ashamed of David because of his worship and his passion before the Lord. Uh, notice this. I'm going to read back through a couple of the verses here, um, verses 6 through 12, and notice how often the idea of shame comes up. Uh, David says in verse 6, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. In verse 7, he says, I've borne reproach and dishonor has covered my face. In verse 8, he says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. And then verses 10 through 12 read this way. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. This is a cascade of dishonor and disgrace in David's life. The more passionate he got about God's glory, the more shame he received from the world around him. Um, some of you uh, may know that the most exciting thing that happens every year on October 31st is actually not Halloween. Uh, the most exciting thing that happens every year on October 31st is the celebration of Reformation Day. 
on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door at the church in Wittenberg uh, against the Roman Catholic Church. And he had become more and more convinced that through reading the scriptures that the church was not preaching the true gospel. The more passionate that Luther got about the true gospel, uh, the more opposition he, he was met with by the leaders of the church. And a few years later, in 1520, so we're talking about almost 500 years to the day. It was in October 1520, uh, almost 500 years to the day. Uh, David, uh, excuse me, not David, Luther was commanded to recant his teachings about uh, what he had said about the church and what he had said about the true gospel. And the pressure, um, the dishonor, the idea of being excommunicated, by the way, in a time in history when two things were true. One, if you got kicked out of the church, there was no other church. <laughs> there, was no, there was no going down the road, you know, a couple miles to find the next church to try, try out. There was one church. If you got kicked out of it, you were out. And the other thing is, a lot of people in Luther's day, when they were kicked out of the church, they were also conveniently killed for their beliefs and trust in, in what they were proclaiming, okay? So Luther has experienced this extreme pressure because he has to make a decision. Are you going to go back on what you said about Jesus? Are you going to go back on what you said about the gospel? Or are you going to face being kicked out of the church and potentially losing your life? And he struggled, he wrestled, he waffled. But in the end, by the grace of God, Luther stood fast on the word of God. And we're thankful that he did. Um, he was kicked out of the church, and that began the Protestant Reformation that we now find our church in the lineage of. Um, Luther's passion for the truth that uh, a man or a woman can only be declared righteous before God by faith in Jesus Christ uh, got, um, had immense consequences. Shame, ridicule, mocking, and eventually being kicked out of the church was his lot in life. And there have been tens of thousands of faithful Christians over the years who have had to experience very similar situations where being faithful for Jesus meant shame, ridicule, mocking, and potentially even losing their life. So let's just pause for a moment, and let's talk about the power of shame in our world today. You know, what is shame? Shame happens when a person is humiliated or belittled because of something that they are or something that they say or something that they believe or do. Uh, shame happens when, uh, when bullying occurs, so when another person tries to put another person down, either verbally or physically. Uh, shame happens when gossip occurs, when one person tries to belittle another person by spreading rumors about them. Uh, shame happens when prejudice occurs, when a, uh, a group or a service or a job is withheld from someone because of how they look or who they are or what they believe. Uh, shame is a powerful force in our world because shame is an attack on our identity. The, the goal of shame is to shut you up and to shut you down. And so with that in mind, let's look again at what it was that was causing David to be shamed. In verse 9, I think this is maybe the heart of the whole psalm. He says, For zeal... In other words, passion, excitement for your house has consumed me. It was David's passion for God's house. David had become 
one of those lunatics. David had become fanatical. David had become consumed with a passion for God's glory. So let's just pause right here and and ask ourselves some questions. Um, Consumed is this big word, right? Imagine um, a a big animal sort of swallowing up a smaller animal. Or imagine a little twig just being totally uh, evaporated in a fire. Uh, Imagine what's going to happen in a few weeks when your Thanksgiving plate just disappears in front of you, right? Something being consumed means to devour it or to to swallow it up Uh, on November 15th. We're going to have some baptisms, and we're going to celebrate. And, and what's going to happen is some people are going to be totally consumed under the water. They're going to be submerged and immersed. And it's going to be this representation that they have now been consumed in Jesus Christ, that, that their sin uh, went into Jesus and his righteousness goes into them, that their death went into Jesus and his life went into them. It's this picture of being clothed, wrapped, consumed, immersed. So the questions for us, what consumes you? What do you think about the most? What gets most of your emotional energy? I thought about it uh, in my own life this week, and it kind of started with maybe some more like trivial things, you know, I thought about uh, television and, and sports and that sort of thing, getting wrapped up in it. Um, I thought about um, you know ca- catching catching a news story on my phone or computer and just getting lost, and all of a sudden you know three hours later you're still f- you know f- following this worm. But then I think when it really set in for me, and I really started to think about what honestly consumes me, what honestly immerses me. Um, for me, what what typically consumes me is the desire to have a good reputation in the sight of other people. And so all day long, all the time, I'm thinking, I'm positioning, I'm wondering, and that thought of how do people think of me ends up just consuming my world, consuming my heart, consuming my mind. So I don't know. I wonder what it is for you. I wonder what consumes you. But here's the deal. Here's what I want to ask you, and I want to ask myself this morning. Would your life be better or worse if you were totally consumed by Jesus Christ? Has anyone ever in the history of the world gotten to their deathbed and thought to themselves, I really wish that I hadn't have given so much to Jesus. Has anyone ever regretted giving their whole life to Jesus? It's never happened. So then what keeps us from going all in? What keeps us from just being totally consumed? Well, I think we learn from both this passage and and probably because of where we live in the world one of the most powerful influences that keep us from going all in is the influence of shame. It's the idea that you and I might be mocked, ridiculed, ostracized, that our sense of importance might be diminished, that we might lose a seat at the table 
the idea of shame, it shuts us up and it shuts us down and it keeps us from being consumed with the Lord. But remember, there's a fine line between crazy and committed, faithful and fanatical. And that line is whether that thing you are passionate about is true or false. (laughs) So in the end, if the Bible is true, then the only way to have a life of significance, the only way to have a true seat at God's table is to be totally consumed by Jesus Christ. And if that's true of you, you you won't regret it. I promise you won't regret it in the end. So those who seek God should expect hatred and shame to come against them with the attempt to shut them up and shut them down. So how will David respond? Uh, We move now to verses 13 through 18 and see third, that those who seek God will have to wait for God's timing. Those who seek God We'll have to wait for God's timing. I love how after expressing his sense of shame, expressing his sense of dishonor from other people in his life, David now only doubles down with the Lord in verse 13. He says, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, put a little dot by that, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. David is desperate. He's on the verge of hopelessness. And he really, really wants to be saved by God. And yet, in all of his uh, desire to be saved by God, he humbly submits to God's sovereign timetable. Lord, at an acceptable time, when it seems right in your eyes, when you're the one who sees all things and you know the end from the beginning, when you know it's right, then, Lord, come and answer me, rescue me, help me. When it comes to waiting in the Christian life, uh, I think we need to consider why it is that God allows us to wait. Like, why do we have to wait on stuff? And I think one of the important reasons is that that it's in the waiting where we learn uh, who God really is and who we really are. One of the biggest dangers when we're in, in the waiting, when we're waiting on God, is to lose sight of who He is or to lose sight of who we are. I was thinking about this week um, how nice it is when you order an Amazon package that you can go on and track your shipping. Uh, being able to see you know, every stage where, where the package goes from one place to the next, it just makes the waiting process a little bit more bearable. And I was thinking about how nice would it be if we could track the shipping on God's promises in our life. I mean, how awesome would that be if you could go on and see exactly when that thing, exactly when the Lord was going to come through for you, exactly when the Lord was going to reach down and and rescue you. Uh, But my mind went somewhere further. This is how my mind works. My mind went somewhere further. And I imagine myself sitting at a computer screen and, you know, wanting to go on and, and check, check the shipping on God's promise in my life. And so I get to the screen and, and there's the re- reveal button and I hit the button and then a little message pops up. And this is what the message said. It said, I love you. I'm faithful and I'm never late. Go in peace. That's how my mind works. During the waiting when we are challenged to trust in God's timing, we need to repeat over and over and over again, who is God and who am I? 
Who is God and who am I? And according to this passage, God is abundant in steadfast love. He possesses saving faithfulness. He is abundant in mercy. He is our redemption. He is our ransom. And He is good. That is who the God who we wait for. That is who He is. But what about us? How do we need to remind ourselves of who we are in the waiting? There's one thing that David calls himself throughout these verses. One thing that I think we need to vitally remember when we're in a season of waiting, and it comes in verse 17. David says, Hide not your face from your servant. The only way to wait faithfully is to remember two things simultaneously. (laughs) To remember that we are God's servants and to remember that He loves us. To remember that at the same time, God owes us absolutely nothing. And yet, He has promised us everything. Knowing who He is and who we are allows us to wait well. Now, after expressing his trust in God's faithful timing, uh, David really begins to open up his heart. And I think it's at this point, we we could have done this at a number of different places already throughout uh, the sermon. But at this point, it's going to be helpful to see how David is really pointing us forward to the greater and better King Jesus. And so, uh, fourth, those who seek God will appear to be alone. Those who seek God will appear to be alone. We'll pick up in verse 19. David prays to the Lord, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. David's all alone. He looked for someone who would care, but no one cared. He looked for somebody who, in his life who'd be an encourager, but there was no one to encourage. And then when it almost seemed like maybe someone was coming to his aid, instead they gave him food that was poisonous and wine that was sour. So again, thinking through how this points us beyond David to King Jesus. Uh, Psalm 69 is quoted no less than seven times in the New Testament. Uh, And it's not just one verse. Uh, There are a number of different verses that are quoted no less than seven times in the New Testament. And so I just want to share a few of those with you. Uh, One instance where this happens is in uh, John 15, verse 25. Jesus is speaking with his disciples. He's there at the Last Supper, and he says, but the word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus was hated. He was the light who came into the world, and the darkness hated him because the light exposes the darkness. A second example is in John 2. 
Jesus makes a whip of cords and he goes into the temple and he begins to drive out the money changers and then pick up in verse 16 and 17 and it reads like this. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. For as zealous as David was about God's house, Jesus is even more zealous. For as passionate as David was about God's glory, Jesus is even more passionate. But I think another place, and particularly pertinent to this section of the psalm, is in Mark chapter 15, verses 34 through 37, where we see the comment about the sour wine come to fruition in the life of Jesus. It says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus consumed with zeal for God's glory, hanging on a cross by his hands and his feet, suffering the punishment of a criminal. He was left to die all alone. There was none to take pity on him, none able or willing to comfort him. Christianity certainly is the offer of forgiveness and eternal life, but it is resurrection life that comes through a gruesome crucifixion. It is eternal glory that comes through immense shame. It is unending honor that comes through the most humiliating dishonor. I intentionally titled point four, those who seek God will appear to be alone because that's just it. You are not alone. When you have gone all in with Jesus, when you are being shamed and ridiculed and mocked and laughed at because you care about the glory of God, you can actually rehearse verse 19 where it says, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you, knowing that Jesus literally knows your shame. Every slap, every jab, every mock, every joke, every spit has hit the face of Jesus and pierced the heart of Jesus before it ever lands on you. If we're going to be people who go all in, who get consumed, 
who are willing to live crazy lives for Jesus, we have to know and believe this truth that there is nowhere that you can go in following Jesus where Jesus hasn't already gone before you. And there is no place that you can go in following Jesus where Jesus won't go with you. He's already been there. And guess what, guys? He is seated at the right hand of God. (laughs) What glory. What glory. Now, I think that as I was preparing uh, the sermon this week, this was the hardest transition for me. Um, Thinking about the tenderness of the heart of Jesus, thinking about how willing he is to forgive sinners. Um, This is a tough tough shift, and I I think you'll see what I mean, but I think that's why it's so important that we see that the New Testament is in no way embarrassed of this psalm. And in fact, these verses that we are going to read is quoted in multiple places throughout the New Testament. And so fifth, those who seek God will need to trust in God's justice. Those who seek God will need to trust in God's justice. So we're going to read verses 22 through 28. And this is what I want you to be thinking about. What could the Holy Spirit have had in mind when he inspired these words to be in the text of Scripture? What could God have wanted for us in giving this to the church as a text of our Scripture to read and pray and sing and love? Let's read it. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. David is calling down the utmost severity of God's justice upon his enemies. He is literally, in graphic and poetic language, asking God to send them to hell. So what are we to do with this? Why might God have given this to us in his holy word? Well, first, I think we have to notice what David is not doing in response to injustice, what he's not doing in response to being hated and rejected. Uh, David is not going around gossiping about his enemies. Uh, David is not going around devising a plan to get vengeance back on his enemies. Uh, Mainly, David is not himself taking justice into his own hands. But we also have to see, on the other hand, that David is also not just sweeping what's happening to him under the rug. He's not just closing a blind eye to it and acting like it's okay. I think these are the two mistakes that most of us quickly make. When we've been wronged, we either get puffed up and want to fight back, or we get deflated and want to neglect it and act like it never happened. But see, those are both self-oriented responses. Those are both responses that when you're sinned against, 
then you respond with sin. But I think God has a better way for us. So what is David doing? What is he doing in these verses? Well, he's crying out to God for justice in an appropriate way by trusting God to do what only God is allowed to do. Remember, this is a prayer, which means that in offering this prayer up to God, he's putting justice, he's putting even vengeance back in God's hands rather than taking it with his own hands, which is exactly what the New Testament calls us to do. To leave, the, leave vengeance to the Lord. It is mine to repay, says the Lord. So here's the burning question that I know we all have. <clears throat> should we pray like this? You know, should words like this ever be in our prayers? And uh, I'm going to give you an answer that you're probably going to hate. Maybe. Maybe with these three things in mind. First, that Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So at some point, after going into our closet and crying out to God for justice, we're going to have to know that we are going to have to work through a process of forgiveness and love towards our enemies so that at some point our prayer turns from justice to forgiveness. Here's the second thing. Uh, This piece of the psalm is only one short little fragment. And so if we're praying this way and you find that you're regularly praying this way and that this becomes the constant prayer of your heart, uh, you are totally out of balance. There is so much more here. This psalm is like a journey that God is taking us on to deliverance, to rescue, to praise. And so if you get stuck in this kind of a a prayer, then I think you're, you're out of balance. But then I think the final thing, probably the most important thing, if you're ever going to pray this way, is that your heart better be white hot set on the glory of God so that it doesn't just become some sort of personal vendetta. See, what's really at stake with justice, what's really at stake with justice, justice and injustice is God's righteousness. He is the one that, that justice is about. He is the one that is proved faithful, that is proved right when justice occurs. And so if you've been wronged and you long for justice, long for it in a way that glorifies God rather than in a way that satisfies your own selfish ends and desires. So to sum it up, I think that these sections of the Psalms are given to us for this reason, to be able to entrust justice into God's hands, to unburden our heart and our soul before him when either we've been wronged or when we see other people uh, wronged, and to to legitimately long for the day when God comes, as he's promised, to make all things right. And so I think with those things in mind, uh, you might be able to pray like this um, in a godly way. Now, I want to stress again that this is just one short blip in the psalm. Uh, You're going to see here David's going to turn the corner, and he's not going to look back. And so with that in mind, uh, point six, those who seek God will have their hearts revived. Those who seek God will have their hearts revived. You know, after the struggling, after the sense of being wounded, after expressing his loneliness and then, and then a desire for justice, this is what David says. We're going to pick up in verse 29. 
but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns or hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. In his pain, down in his affliction, David is met with the reviving mercies of God. But what caused it? What happened in his heart that, that, that moved him to be able to praise and give thanks to God in this kind of way? Well, I think we see the answer in verse 33, where David says, For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Do you hear it? Do you hear what happened in David's heart? David realized that though he might be despised by all the world, he was not despised by God. Dishonored by the world, but honored by God. Hated by the world, but loved by God. Neglected by the world, but welcomed with open arms by the Father. And that's why David, for the first time in 30 verses, 31 verses, he stops praying and he starts preaching. For the first time, he starts talking to us. And he says, you who seek God, let your hearts revive. Why? Because if you sought God, and if you've been consumed by Jesus, then it doesn't matter what the world says about you. God is on your side. Remember the fine line between crazy and committed, fanatical and faithful? It's whether in the end what you gave yourself to was true or false. And David is saying, hey, if you're going after the Lord, if you're giving it everything you have, and you're catching all kind of backlash for it, guess what? You're headed in the right direction. Keep going. Let your heart be lifted. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. Why? Because though all the world despise you, God is 100% pleased with you. And his opinion is the only one that matters. Now, we all know that would have been a great ending to the sermon, uh, and it would have been a great ending to the psalm, but it's not. And I think the reason why is because although a revived heart is a really, really important thing, there's still one more thing that, that, that's more concrete, that's more tangible, that David wants to point us in the direction of this morning. And so, finally, those who seek God will have an unshakable hope in the kingdom of God. Those who seek God will have an unshakable hope in the kingdom of God. Verses 34 through 36. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Even while we must be citizens of this earthly kingdom, those who have put their faith in Jesus are citizens of another kingdom that can never be shaken. When you choose to follow Jesus, instead of the, 
current of whatever's popular in culture. Whenever you choose to be consumed by the glory of God rather than whatever new news story is out there. Whenever you choose to proclaim boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ and you get crucified for it, know this. That everything on this earth is passing away, but the kingdom of God stands forever. Amen. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29, it's put for us this way. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Now you say, wait a second. These people didn't live through 2020. They don't know what we've been through. Guys, these believers, we learn in chapter 10, some of them had been put in prison and they had had their homes plundered for the sake of following Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them. And he's saying, I know, I know you lost your home. I know your friends are in prison. But you've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let your hearts revive. So school or no school, let us be grateful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Trump or Biden, let us be grateful that we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Living or dying, let us be grateful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer up to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that not only do you deserve our whole lives and that not only do you deserve everything from us, but that even after we ran away from you, even after we wanted to squander our lives, you came after us. Lord, you came after us and you experienced the loneliness, you experienced the mocking, you experienced the shame in the form of human flesh. Lord, so that we can be restored. And so all we can say this morning is thank you. God, we ask that you would take us on this journey so that our hearts would be moved further and further and further into hope of that eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. God, revive the hearts of your people this morning. Let those who seek you rejoice. So in Jesus' name, we continue to worship. Amen.